Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today, my guest is the prolific actor, writer, director, and producer, Ed Burns. He's here to discuss his new epics series, Bridge and Tunnel. I should note that this interview was recorded at the beginning of February. Hey, Ed, so let's just jump right into Bridge and Tunnel, and um, I have a lot of questions. I just saw the first episode, but this, uh, why don't you start with some of the basics, like what's it about, and uh, how do you end up making the show? All right, it's a, it's a, it's a long answer, and uh, I think it ties <laughs> in nicely to, um, you know, the, the, the name of your podcast, because, you know, anytime you embark on a new project, it is about sort of like corralling your obsessions, you know? So this this kind of came from a bunch of different places. You know, the first was a few years ago, I had dinner with a friend of mine, Michael Wright, who runs the Epics Network, which is where Bridge and Tunnel is airing. He said, he said, look, you know, I am looking for a show that will be a break from these miserable times that we seem to be living through. And he said, you know, there's there's a lot of terrific programming on television, but very little of it puts a smile on your face. Um, so we kind of brainstormed a little bit over dinner about, you know, the kind of movies and shows that we loved. And we kind of stumbled upon, you know, two of our favorites were Diner, which was Michael's, one of Michael's favorite films, this group of five or six best friends who get together, you know, at the end of every night at the diner in their town in Baltimore, the Barry Levinson film. And for me, you know, one of my films that I go to, you know, that does always put a smile on my face is um, The Graduate. So, and um, maybe a jumping off spot might be kind of like, you know, the Dustin Hoffman character. It's day one after these six characters have graduated college. And you're in that place in your life where, you know, you've still got one foot in your childhood and you've got one foot stepping into your adult life. You know, so from there, I I kind of reverse engineered the show in a weird way. I'm, I'm obsessed with New York City. I'm obsessed with New York history. You know, the, the decades that I always wanted to experience, um, you know, New York in the 50s. My parents both went to high school in New York City in the 50s, and they would always talk about how great New York was then. So that was uh, an era in New York that I've always been obsessed with. And then, you know, the third era is sort of the late 70s, early 80s. You've got, you know, the punk rock scene, the new wave scene, the birth of hip hop. You've got a, you know, uh, a new fashion scene, a new art scene. It was a, um, a, a, uh, a time in New York where young artists could come into the city and, and make their dreams come true. Uh, they could afford um, to move into Manhattan and, and pursue those dreams. So I kind of settled on late 70s, early 80s. And as I imagine season three or four of the show and where I thought these recent college grads might end up. So knowing the end point, I kind of, like I said, reverse engineered it to figure out, well, if that's the story I want to tell in season four. Who are these kids when we meet them day one after college graduation, when they're moving back into their childhood homes and first stepping out to pursue those dreams? 
Well, and I want to ask you about the 80s because, uh, you know, there are a number of shows that do play, take place in the 80s. And I think on one side of that spectrum, you have something like Stranger Things where the 80s are essentially like another character in the show. Then you have a series like The Americans that's set in the 80s but isn't as precious about it as Stranger Things. And as you approached um, A Bridge and Tunnel, how did you define what the 80s would be for that world? And um, did you have kind of like limits to like, oh, I want to do this, but I don't want it to be a parody of like growing up in the 80s you know yeah i think that's why you know this the these kids who we meet in the summer of 1980 are really children of the 70s again you know like you you talk about your obsessions like i'm you know 11 years old in 1979 so i look at that era as probably probably that's the the time i overly romanticize more than any other time period given my age you know the music from that time has such a different kind of emotional effect on you than let's say music that you might've been hearing in your thirties, you know, as a, as a kid on my block on Long Island, you know, sort of looking at the older guys and girls, you know, they look like um, superheroes, you know, they look like the coolest kids <laughs> you, know, you aspired to be, you know, they're all decked out on a Saturday night, walking up to the train station to go have their, their night in the city. So I kind of, I, I, I think that's why I settled on 80 because, you know, when you hit 85, 86, 87, there's a picture of that, let's say MTV era, big hair 80s, that is just less interesting to me um, mm. than this early 80s um, era. So uh, we had a limited budget because we lost almost a fifth of our budget to our COVID protocols. You know, the thing I got most excited about was recreating, you know, New York City in 1980. And the minute we, when we knew we'd have to um, sort of restructure the show based on this new budget, uh, I immediately got rid of everything that takes place in New York City. So um, that's why instead of seeing some of these characters at a bar or a nightclub in the city or walking down a street in Manhattan, or you know, having a job interview um, in Manhattan, they're in their backyard or their front stoop or sitting <laughs> in the car talking about the interview or the nightclub or the bar in Manhattan. So hopefully in season two, um, uh, we won't have to spend so much money on those COVID protocols and we'll, we'll be able to re re recreate CBGBs and some of the other you know, dreams we had as filmmakers. I want to ask another question, and this is the, I don't live in New York. I think I know the answer, but I'm sure a lot of people might not know. What does the term bridge and tunnel mean? Or I think it's also called B&T. So, you know, bridge and tunnel, I guess um, it, it was a term uh, that started in New York. And it was for, you know, the, the kids who grew up in the city. And in this case, you know, in New York, we refer to Manhattan as the city everything else, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, Jersey, Long Island, um, all of all of us, let's say, out of borough for folks referred to Manhattan as the city. So the city kids referred to that group of kids, the out of borough kids, as the bridge and tunnel kids because you had to get into Manhattan via a bridge or a tunnel. But it was always, you know, a uh, almost a derogatory term. It was like, uh, the bridge and tunnel kids just aren't as cool. Like I can remember trying to get into a nightclub 
with my friends and the bouncer saying, sorry, guys, no bridge and tunnel tonight. So he could take one look at my <laughs> haircuts and my accents and knew that we were not uh, we were not the cool kids. That's so, but, you, you know, at a certain point, you end up wearing that um, as a as a badge of honor, you know. And then um, I'm going back to the shows. Um, I'm also curious, like with the the idea of the artist, is that something that appeals to you just because it's interesting or is it uh, you are well known for being an artist, especially someone who does multiple uh, aspects of a discipline. What about having characters that are artists or struggling artists? Why is that something you wanted to feature in this show? I, I knew I wanted to make this ensemble, you know, comedy drama um, with, you know, one of the number one goals, like I said early on, was like to put a smile on your face, to have, to have a good time for a half hour. Um, but the other thing that I was really interested in is when I settled on this idea that these kids are coming home from school and they're, they all kind of grew up on the same block on Long Island, I grew up 22 minutes from the city. And, you know, uh, I'd say half of my friends looked to Manhattan as the beacon, as the place you wanted to go, the place where your dreams would come true. And the other half sort of looked, um, looked east and said, look, I just want to stay here in the burbs and that's the life I want. So for those of us who dreamed about a life in Manhattan, I would say, you know, probably 50% of us had some sort of artistic ambitions. You want to be a painter, you want to be a designer, you know, filmmaker, writer, actor, model, whatever it may have been. And I guess because so many of my friends now um, are folks in that world, we, we've all shared stories over the years about our respective journeys and the challenges. Um, and if you are a kid who grew up, let's say, outside of the business, whatever the business is, and you didn't have any connections, it was so much harder to get in than folks that you met who had a parent who was an actor, a filmmaker, musician. So again, with, with those kind of thoughts, I was like, well, all right, I want these kids to have a tough road to pursue their respective dreams. But I also think I, you know, I, I kind of wanted the show to be, you know, uh, aspirational. I wanted you to see at least some of them achieve those dreams. But I also wanted you, if I, if I created six kids that you cared about, that the audience would take a rooting interest in whether or not they succeeded, and uh, and and hopefully get their heart broken and have, you know, have the kind of emotional response uh, you said you had to not only when their let's say their romantic lives don't work out. But when their career aspirations don't work out, yeah, I, I could see, I could see, I could see this being a, uh, a, but I think it's, I think it's being billed as a, a, a dramedy, which I, I, don't, I was going to get ask you what your take was on that term, but, but yeah, it's humorous, but it's also like there is a sincerity to it, a genuineness to the whole thing that is just very compelling. Well, I definitely, you know, I mean, I didn't want it to be snarky, and I didn't want it to be hip, and I didn't want it to be condescending and I certainly didn't want to make fun of any of the characters you know I mean I guess this earnestness isn't maybe the right word but I tried to I guess write the characters as honestly as I could and I think the dramedy term like most people's life you know every day is a bit of drama and a bit of comedy um very rarely is any one person's day just tonally one mood so um and I think you'll see as you see um, you know, the other episodes, there's some episodes where we kind of lean into the humor a little bit more. And then there are other episodes where we lean into the drama a little bit more. But, you know, I mean, those, again, you know, 
all of my favorite films, you know, when, when I'm a young guy in film school, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, the French new wave, like I was a big Truffaut guy or sort of, you know, some of the great old, um, Hollywood films from that era, whether it's, you know, the big chill, the world, according to Garp, you know, the Jim Brooks movies, you know, those movies, like a movie like broadcast news was able to balance, you know, real drama and great, great comedy. And that's a, you know, that's a very hard juggling act, but that's what, um, I kind of aspire to do with this series. I only saw the first episode, but I, I was going to ask about the music because that that episode actually had a lot of lot of songs in it. Like, um, I think for a lot of people, um, the '80s is about the music as much as the fashions and everything, or lack of technology, right? And so, what was the appeal f- for finding the music for Bridge and Tunnel? Is that something you wrote in the script, or you had the budget to actually get those songs that you wanted? Uh, I was lucky. I, we we did have the budget to get uh, most of the songs I wanted. And again, like I said, you know, being a uh, a kid in the seventies, you know, the the what I wanted sort of the soundtrack of this show to be is all the music that you heard as a kid. You know, and again, people didn't have you know it it predates you know the Walkman, so people didn't have any kind of technology. So like, if you went to the beach. Everybody had a boombox and every different type of music was playing as you walk through the beach to find your spot in the sand. So, you know, you were exposed to disco, you were exposed to rock, you were exposed to metal, um, you were exposed to new wave. So as a kid, you know, I, and I'm talking about obsessions, I've always been obsessed um, with music and all different types. So this show was definitely an opportunity to, to kind of dip back into my old record collection and pull out some, you know, some random deep cuts. So, yeah, I think like the first song in the episode we hear is Radar Love and you're like, oh, my God, this is great. Uh, it's actually it's uh, Steve Miller's Jungle Love. Oh, it's Jungle Love. It's OK, jungle it's in love. the background. Yeah. Get... Oh, wow. That's tremendous. Um, it reminds there was a Beastie Boys had like an autobiography come out a few years ago and there's this great uh, story of like them talking about growing up in the 80s in New York and you know they'd be listening to that's the way radio was right so someone would have a boombox on the train you'd hear the song and as you're going up the steps you'd hear it from a car a car who had the same radio station on as you're walking toward a building you'd hear that same song so it's kind of like the the music was following you throughout uh, throughout New York and um, there was a it's like uh, a unique perspective of that. And it was just fun seeing like the jukebox scene in this first episode that, yeah, that was a thing that was not like a novel thing. It's just like, this is, you're not going to hear any music unless someone picks what's playing on the jukebox. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was also, I mean, it was just, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was just blasting everywhere you went, you know, whether your mom had on like, like the AM radio top 40 yacht rock tunes when she was cleaning the house or the kid next door while he was working on his Chevelle, you know, was cranking Billy Joel, <laughs> you know, and the girls across the street were blasting Donna Summer. You know, it was like, you know, when you went out to walk around the neighborhood, everywhere you went, people were blasting their tunes. We've talked a little, you mentioned the word obsession a few times. The name of this podcast is I'm So Obsessed. Um, aside from Bridge and Tunnel, what are you obsessed with? You know, I guess my my number one obsession is, you know, I've been growing up in New York 
I was a basketball junkie my whole life. I'm a lifelong Nick fan. Um, I've turned my son into an obsessive Nick fan. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we watch every game religiously. Um, even, you know, uh, we've had some rough seasons the last couple of years, but you know, we, we live and die by the Knicks, and we always will. In fact, I'm wearing a Knicks sweatshirt right now as I look down at myself. <laughs> well, I'd say I, part of, uh, I think, the uh, COVID experience, a lot of us were seeing the Jordan documentary that came out, uh, The Last Dance. Uh, was that something you watched? Was that something that appealed to you? Because the Knicks do play a, a big part of that as well. Very painful to watch. Brought back a lot of painful memories of watching Jordan take down our Knicks time and time again. So yes, I did watch it, and I can't say I enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I appreciate to uh, what an insanely, you know, that, that he is the goat. He hurt us way too many times for me to really enjoy that doc. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring up bad memories, but and I was I you know, completely I'm a big fan too. I'm a St. John's fan, so even when he was in college and hit that shot, <laughs> rooting again. So <laughs> Jordan again. Uh, um, so. I, this is a question I never thought to ask, and I, I, I came upon this, uh, I think, ad this past summer, but you are, besides being a writer, producer, director, and actor, you are also now a Calvin Klein model. You and your wife, Christy, uh, made an ad for Calvin Klein Eternity this past summer. How did that come about, and what was that experience like? You know, I, I wouldn't say I'm the Calvin <laughs> you know, uh, Klein. Well, that's why I said it, because I can say that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, she's been working with Calvin Klein for, I think now over 20, 25 years, has been doing campaigns for them uh, forever. So, you know, they had this idea for the latest campaign. You know, there's this one campaign for eternity where it's, you know, it's a, it's a couple. Uh, and she jokes that, you know, I was husband number six for this campaign. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, like we we look at it and think it's, you know, it's, it's fun. And it was great because we got to go away uh, for a couple of days to a great location and have kind of um, this vacation while we're also like, you know, frolicking around in the waves in our fifties, which we both thought was humorous. But then when you see the finished ad, I was like, okay, you know, I guess they, uh, they know what they're doing because it turned out, (laughs) you know, but you know, we had more laughs doing it than anything. And I, I think you get some of that energy through the ad, too. I mean, it looks amazing. But, uh, yeah, you, you just see that chemistry. Well, you guys are married, so it feels weird just to say chemistry, but you guys look like you're having a fun time doing it. Well, we, we're together 20 years now, so we're both, um, you know, pretty damn lucky, I got to admit. Okay, so lucky is a word I think a lot of uh, a lot of us have associated with you. And looking kind of at, like, your resume, I mean, you've you've done this role of writer, director, producer, and actor and I counted 11 films and two TV series now. And I'm curious, what do you enjoy about taking on all four of those jobs for a film or show? You know, for me, it started in film school. I originally thought I wanted to be a novelist. You know, I knew I wanted to write ever since I was a pretty young kid and always enjoyed sort of writing short stories. And uh, I took a film class, uh, like a film appreciation class, and then fell in love with movies. I kind of came to it late, unlike a lot of filmmakers who I think when they were teenagers realized they, they wanted to be filmmakers. Um, but anyhow, I, I, I took this film appreciation class and thought, oh, maybe I should think about writing movies, which is something 
I never gave any thought to because I never gave any thought to where movies came from. So uh, my dad actually got me the Sid Field screenwriting book. And that's the first time I saw actually what a screenplay looked like. And it was primarily dialogue. And I thought, oh, I think I write pretty good dialogue. So I said, let me try writing screenplays. Um, so I wrote my first script and that's when I decided, oh, okay, I don't know how I would feel about handing this off to someone and letting them direct it. So that's when I decided to start taking film production classes. And then my, you know, my senior year at Hunter College, I made a 15 minute short film, uh, again, due to intimidation and, and, and being terrified of having to work with real actors, you know, the kids from the theater department. I just cast me and a buddy of mine and, we <laughs> thing. and I was like, Oh, okay. That was pretty fun and didn't turn out terrible. So let me continue to do that. Uh, I started writing screenplays. I wrote five scripts in about three years, sent them out to Hollywood, to every agent and manager and studio and production company and got nothing but rejection letters back. And then this is now probably 92, 93, you started to see this sort of new wave in the indie film world. These movies were being made for $20,000, $30,000. And knowing what some of my short films cost, I was like, okay, well, you know, I bet you I can shoot a feature for 25,000 if I'm smart about my approach and my screenplay. So I kind of just, before even writing the script, I kind of wrote down what are the locations I knew I could get for free. So I knew I could get my parents' house and I knew I could get every street, <laughs> every street and park in New York City. Because at the time I was, I was working for a television show, Entertainment Tonight, and we would shoot a lot of man on the street interviews. So I kind of wrote down those locations and then started to map out, you know, what that story might look like. And that, that film uh, turned into the Brothers McMullen, which I made for $25,000, shot 12 days over the course of eight months. So I'd raise a little money, shoot a day, raise a little money, shoot another two days, and slowly pieced it together like that. And then, kind of like all my screenplays, I sent that film in to every manager, producer, a production company, and studio, and got nothing back uh, but rejection letters for a solid year until we finally got accepted into Sundance. And then at Sundance, you know, overnight, my life changed. That Sundance acceptance is a legendary story itself with handing off a VHS tape to Robert Redford and he actually watching it and liking it enough to to bring it to Sundance and, and have, the, have it screened there. And obviously it got picked up. If you could go back to the 90s and give yourself any advice on on writing, directing, producing, acting, what would it be? That's a good question. You know, I would say I was, you know, when you're in film school, you're such a student of the game, right? You're reading everything you can get your hands on about other filmmakers, other screenwriters, you're reading other screenplays, you're watching films and you're really looking at them with a very critical eye because you're, you're trying to learn how to do this thing. And then I would say probably, you know, so it wouldn't be the 90s. It would be like in the early 2000s. You know, after my fourth movie, Sidewalks of New York, I would say I don't, I probably got a little lazy. You know, I'm, I'm in the business at that point five years. 
and I was no longer as focused a student as I should have been. So things that I used to do every time before I sat down to write a script that, you know, I would outline incessantly and I would make sure that every scene, you know, had real purpose and I knew what my intention was. I think I got, you know, a little lazy after that. And if I look at the next four movies after that, which was a movie called Ash Wednesday, then Looking for Kitty, The Groomsman and Purple Violets, those are four scripts that I did not outline. And I know I was I was probably distracted. You know, my acting career um, was, was, was sort of the post-Private Ryan time, so I was doing a lot more acting. When those four films all, you know, they didn't underperform. They really did not do well. Uh, they bombed. I was like, uh, I had a moment where I was like, all right, I need to go back to the drawing board and I need to sort of go back to school and uh and that's kind of what i've done since so that's probably in around 07 or 08 so you know the the advice i would have given myself is to have remained a diligent student that's that's, that's good advice but it's hard to do right hard to do and, yeah. and i would say uh something else too i think that goes along with that is you're a bit experimental with how you embrace technology so uh i think it's 2004 you shot looking for kitty on a $3,000 Panasonic digital camera. You shot Newlyweds on a Canon 5D, which is a consumer DSLR. You shot Nice Guy Johnny on a Red One camera. Now with people having basically a small film studio in their pocket with phones, could you ever see yourself shooting a film on an iPhone? Uh, I can't wait to shoot a film on my iPhone. I've been seeing the new Apple commercials and uh, you know I don't know what that story is I'd want to tell yet. Um, but I've been talking to my DP who I've done most of my films with and, and he loves the idea of it, but we just, um, you know, I'll see what happens with bridge and tunnel. Um, but the answer to your question is yes. I, I, I can't wait to play with it and experiment with it. Could I ask why is it without getting into like specifics about a project? Is it like a, just the timeliness of it or the ease of it? What, why, why shoot something on an iPhone when you can have an actual professional camera? You know, my experience in making that that first film for 25000 um, I know how to make a movie with a three-man crew and no money. Um, and I know that the, the freedom that that three-man crew affords you. So I, I've always loved that idea. That's why, you know, looking for Kitty, when we heard about that new technology, there was this weird, like, um, oscillating glass that you would put in front of the video camera that, get, that gave you sort of a more filmic uh, depth of field. And the thing that, you know, you you get when you embrace those, let's say, the, the new technology or, and the, the smaller cameras is, you know, I've always talked about like, you know, there, there are two lists of compromises you can work off as an indie filmmaker, right? So, you know, um, if you're going to make a uh, a movie that requires even five hundred thousand dollars, right? But you know, let's say five million. You know, someone needs to cut that check for you. And the minute someone cuts a check for you, there are certain compromises that you're going to have to make because you've now entered into a partnership, and they're going to want some say, so they can potentially, you know, change who you want to cast. They can ask to change certain aspects of the script. Uh, they can change your title. They can tell you they don't like the music. You know, they're all, and, and the more money you get, the more you have to listen to them. 
you know, when you make a no budget movie on one of these little cameras, the compromises are very different. It's like, well, we know we're not going to get any stars. And we know because of that, odds are we're not going to have sort of the traditional theatrical release. And I, I want to be okay with that. What's the alternative ways to get that movie in front of as many people as possible? So that's why we started to explore different ways to release films early on. Like uh, I made a movie called Purple Violets, which was the first movie ever offered exclusively on iTunes. You know, Nice Guy Johnny was another movie where we embraced VOD uh, very early on and was like, no, this is the this is the release we want because we can get into 82 million homes via cable. And <laughs> I go on to Conan tonight and tell you to rent it. You can go onto the on-demand page and rent it as opposed to the old days. You know, you might go on to, you know, let's say you're doing the talk show circuit leading up to your theatrical release. Uh, that movie doesn't show up on most platforms until six months later. And even the small art films never showed up in the majority of towns. You know, you'd play New York, LA, maybe your second week, you'd get San Fran, Chicago, Atlanta, Miami. But if you lived in Columbus, Ohio, that movie might never get to your art house. You may not even have an art house. And today that's certainly much more the case. I want to wrap things up with a thing we do in the show called Pick One. So let's play some Pick One. The first one, <laughs> you're going to be like, I hate this guy. Uh, pick one, writer, producer, director, or actor? Uh, writer, definitely, because it is the one part of the, the business that uh, you don't require uh, someone else's money to do it. I, I love the way that you still, you see the entire product you don't just see like oh i like writing or i like character or dialogue which i'm sure those are all true too but also you you just know that i want an audience to watch this and if i can control this this is independent of money that you're able to see that even from just typing words on the page all right next one is uh pick one tv series or film uh, you know uh i think years ago i absolutely would have said film um and i'm not just saying tv series because uh that's what I'm doing right now. You know, I've always told sort of small character driven pieces. And uh, the fun thing about doing a series is, you know, if, if Bridge and Tunnel was a movie, it would be a movie about two characters, Jimmy and Jill. And then the group of best friends would be there to be sort of the supporting cast and the allies. With the television show, now all six of those folks can be the leads. And I get to really delve into who all these other types of characters are. So for me and the kind of stories, you know, I've, I've been telling for the last 26 years, I think, um, I think television is a better place for me. All right. This next one, I, I apologize for but I just have to ask. So pick one, Saving Private Ryan, Entourage, 27 Dresses or Holiday? I mean, that's, that's the easiest one you gave me. All right. Come on. <laughs> Not that the deals aren't great, but I mean, you know, that's. Uh... Well, and I, I don't know you well enough because I could feel like you, I, you gave the answer. I, we, I think we all wanted, which is yeah. favorite Private Ryan. But uh, what's cool is you are known for doing a lot of other films, especially as an actor, and um, just talking with people who work at CNET that you were going to be on. It's cool that you have this appeal that's just beyond what your passion is. You know. Huh. Yeah. Well, I got you know I, I'm the first to admit I got so lucky in having that acting career, and it absolutely. 
afforded me probably more freedom to pursue my indie film career than uh, than if I didn't have that. You know, I mean, I, a, I got to work with people like Steven Spielberg. And, you know, I've said before, like, that was going to graduate film class. You know, imagine being hmm. on set, standing behind him for 66 days as a young filmmaker. You know, that's... Uh, uh, that's as great a gift as you could give a young filmmaker. <laughs> I can only imagine. Now, this last one we have kind of talked about a little bit, but uh, pick one. A big-budget shoot with a short filming schedule or a low-budget shoot with a longer filming schedule? Well, I've done the latter so many times that I think I would pick the big budget. And how come? I, you know, again, we were talking earlier about sort of like the new new technology and trying new things. Uh, and even here with this show, you know, Bridge and Tunnel is a new thing. I did a, I did a television show once before because, you know, like I said, I was sort of excited about, let's say, a different canvas to paint on. And those mm. were hour-long episodes. This here is these half hours, which was very different and exciting for me to try. So the fact that I've never done uh, a big-budget film, I think that would be... Um, you know, that, that's the thing I'm looking forward to do doing in my 60s. I'd say, is it ever one of these things where we see a lot of um, indie directors getting pulled for these superhero films? Is that something you would ever sign up to do, like a Marvel film or DC film, if you had the chance? You know, I, I think earlier as a younger filmmaker, I would say absolutely no, because you know, <laughs> I had a clear idea of what I wanted my body of work to look like. I really, you know, I just, I love small movies. It's always been the thing that I've been obsessed with. You know, I saw a last picture show in film school and, um, you know, that has been the movie I've been trying to figure out how to make my version of that for 26 years. Um, and I never saw a sort of the big budget Marvel movie as the thing I was dying to do my version of that. That said, my son is 14 and, you know, I have seen every marvel movie and every dc movie and i love them so now my head is and i'm also older now i'm 53 so my head's in a different place years ago i would say no now i would say absolutely definitely you know at some point uh i think uh it could be a lot of fun yeah i, w I would watch an ed burns marvel movie and i'm sure there's a lot of fans of yours who would do the same in a heartbeat so <laughs> I want to thank Ed for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. You can watch Bridge and Tunnel on Sundays on Epics. Also, please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like this episode, please rate it. Until next time, take care. <laughs>